You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Marianne. Hey, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. Uh, this is The Wright Show, available on streaming video and via audio podcast. I also publish the Non-Zero newsletter. You are Marianne Williamson. You're probably known to just about everyone who's watching or listening. Uh, you have long been a well-known, I guess you could say, spiritual leader and have written uh, books about your spiritual worldview, some of which have become bestsellers. And then uh, a couple of years ago, you gained a new kind of prominence when you decided to run for president and wound up uh, on the debate stage with the other Democratic candidates, which I guess was a different kind of experience, probably. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> slightly. The um, so I want to talk about all this. I want to talk about your your worldview, um, how it uh, manifests itself in uh, in thinking about uh, politics. But I, I want to actually start out by asking, kind of uh, how you how you had the self confidence to run for president. I mean, I, I might ask that of anyone who ran for president. It's it's in some ways an inherently audacious thing to do. But you had a pretty atypical resume, right? And I'm wondering how you how you wound up with the conviction to do it and, and, and kind of the confidence to do it. I would find it kind of scary. I had been a political activist for years. Mm -hmm. I had known quite a few politicians. They're just people. And so I had seen this, this glamour around even what you said earlier, to have the confidence to be up on the stage with them. I've been on a lot of stages. I've been on that stage, actually, in, in Detroit. These are just people, no better or worse than anyone else. And the, the fact that we have turned our democracy into a situation where there's this political class that is surrounded by this illusion that they know more is part of what has gone wrong, given how much destructiveness has actually emerged from that political class, not as people, but in terms of the system itself. So as a student of, and also a teacher, of the technology of personal change, I have come to understand, because I've worked with groups, I've worked with systems, I've worked with organizations, that a group dynamic is no different than an individual dynamic, because all that a group is, is made up of people. And I, because I work up close and personal with people, particularly in critical times in their lives, I've seen how much damage has been done by public policy um, in over the last 40 years. I have seen people up close and personal who, quote unquote, do everything right. They work hard. And what has happened in this country? You know, in the 1970s, the average worker had good benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford to take a vacation every year, could afford to send their kids to college. That was in the 1970s. My career began in 1983. So I've seen the decline in personal opportunity for the average American, very up close and personal. So I'm not uh, uh, intimidated by these people. I'm disgusted by what goes on in that system. And I felt uh, like I should say so. And I still feel so. And the last thing I am is intimidated because of the, like I said, illusion of better qualifications than the rest of us. If you look at the state of our democracy and you look at the state of the world today, by the way, 
how can we still buy into the idea that only those who brought us here should be considered qualified enough to lead us out of this of this ditch that we're in? I think mm-hmm. quite the opposite. I think that those who are who have spent their uh, the decades of a career becoming qualified in in the mechanics of the system as it now exists are probably usually the least qualified to imagine and bring forth a system that is the evolutionary imperative, even the survival imperative for the human race at this time. So are you thinking about running again? I'm thinking about it, but I think a lot of people are thinking about it. I'm thinking Um, about it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thinking about it doesn't mean you're going to do it. Hey, don't count me out. We'll see. But uh, but I would have to first overcome the the fear that apparently you've overcome of like uh, showing up on that stage. I mean, it's such a free for all, you know, that's that's the thing about it. It's such kind of an uncontrolled environment. It seems like, you, you, you know, you can't just wait your turn and it kind of rewards being a jerk in a way. You know, it's like if you look at people who manage to steal the moment and get the soundbite that plays the next day and stuff, it just yeah, I don't know. I don't like these envir- kinds of environments. Let's be more serious here. That stage is the least of it. That stage is just a reality show. That's like watching survival on TV. The What's important is not what goes on on that stage. What's important is what goes on behind the stage. What goes, uh, uh, what is as important is the viciousness. The viciousness on stage is nothing compared to the viciousness that was exhibited by those who wanted to get me off the stage uh, and the smear and the way that they will really do whatever it takes to peripheralize someone and get them out of the what, conversation. What what were the smears that you were kind of a new age flake or what? Yeah, dangerous, kooky, crazy, anti-vax, anti-science, dangerous, you know, crystal lady. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they don't they prefer not to kill you today. They just uh, character assassinate. And that's yeah. very serious, too. Yeah. No, I don't see the bumper sticker uh, crystal lady in 2024 work, working. So they, yeah, they were. I agree they, with you, actually. Um, yeah. So. So. Uh, so. Let me ask you a little about your background. You were born in uh, Houston, Texas. Uh, I I gather you traveled internationally uh, as a child. And I read somewhere that you were seized by the idea as a result of your international uh, travels that people everywhere are basically the same. Um, I wasn't sure if that if that came to you as kind of an epiphany or if just in retrospect, you decided it was your international exposure that had led you to that conclusion or what? What you experience as a child remains within you forever. People used to say to my father, he said this all the time. People would say to my father, how can you take your kids uh, internationally traveling on these trips uh, at such a young age? They'll never remember it. And he used to say it will get under their skin. It will get into their blood. Um, I learned at a very early age, not only that people are the same everywhere, but traveling at a very young age, I went to countries that I would later be told I should see as an enemy who are known for how much they love children. So who were actually nicer to me than I'd seen strangers be in America. What kinds of countries? So, you want to know the truth? Russia. Ah, Russia, so you went, you Russia went to Russia as a child. Example. Yeah. Yeah. When it was behind the Iron Curtain and Russians, I don't know if this is still true. I assume it is because I think it's deeper than just one generation. Love little children. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just find yourself adored, and you know. Um, so yes, when I would later hear uh, the pretty routine propaganda that Americans get about other people, 
because I had traveled so much internationally as a child, I was like, I don't know. I don't think so. That's not my experience. And that's different. Your experience is different than your belief. That was simply not my experience. And I wanted my daughter to have the same experience. And Actually, went a little too far from my daughter. I, I know, you know, we used to, I used to take her to London and, and in the summers. I didn't want her to be this parochial American. I wanted her to see the world and um, never occurred to me she would like stay over there. But she's been now in London for 16 huh. years and her internationalism is I thought it was going to be just an exposure. I didn't know it was going to be for, the, you know, her whole life. But good for her. She found her happy place. Absolutely. Um. So. uh so you went to uh, college and I guess studied theater. Uh, and philosophy. Isn't that interesting? And few philosophy. People have, yeah. yeah. Isn't um, that interesting? It's like few people have lived their major the way I did. Did the, did the philosophy part have a big impact, a lasting impact? Well, yeah. I mean, in most cultures, I would be called a philosopher. Because, well, I see. You mean because of your subsequent work, they would call that philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, I guess a big uh, a big threshold in your development. I mean, you had uh, I guess went through uh, periods that were your own by your own account uh, maybe wilder than than was the, my generation. Wise. You know, the drug, sex, and rock and roll that was routine in my generation. Nothing, nothing extraordinary. Yeah, yeah nothing extraordinary for that time. Um, but you encountered uh, a book. Co- called A Course in Miracles. Yes. And that apparently, now I had gathered that you encountered that at a time when you were looking for something. And, and, and my, my impression was because your life had been in turmoil or something, or you were. Well, uh, I think, I think the twenties are hard. I mean, when I meet people in their twenties today, they're, they're going through what I went through, what you went through. It's a very difficult time in life. And I did have this, almost obsessional interest in anything about the higher mind. It could be the tarot cards. It could be Kierkegaard. It could be uh, Heidegger. It could be the I Ching, whether it was East or West, whether it was esoteric or exoteric, whether it was the Bible or whether it was the, the Kabbalah, I was fascinated. But as much as I read, um, I couldn't quite figure out how to apply some of these principles to my own life in the way that I ultimately uh, was led to do as a student of A Course in Miracles. Now, The Course in Miracles doesn't have monopoly on truth. It doesn't claim to do that. It's not a religion. There's no doctrine. There's no uh, dogma. It's a psychological mind training. But it actually taught me not just, okay, Marianne, be more loving, be more forgiving. It taught me how. And it made a tremendous and continues to this day to make a tremendous um, difference in my life. Okay. And you uh, became something of an evangelizer for it, I guess you could say. And, um, and it's interesting because it's, I I gather uh, from a Christian background, you you weren't Christian. um, But, but before we get into all that, can I ask you, how did it, uh, how did it do what you just said? How did it, teach you? What was the key to figuring out how to work love and forgiveness into your life? The Course in Miracles says that the key is the person standing in front of you or the person you're even thinking about. Mm-hmm. So I, I've, I've written a, and said that I felt before I read The Course in Miracles, 
I felt like I was always seeking God. I was seeking the peace of God. I wanted to be on the spiritual path. And it was almost like there's a cathedral in front of you, a huge cathedral. And there's this huge flight of stairs. And I'm, I'm on that flight of stairs. I'm on my knees. I, I have bloodied elbows. I have bloodied knees. I'll do anything. And I get to the top of the stairs. And the huge door of the cathedral is locked. And I'm pulling open, open, open. When I read The Course in Miracles, I got the key, which is don't even bother trying to find the peace of God if you're such a bitch to that person you just spoke to. Don't even think about it. Because God is your connection with the other, with that other person. Are you blaming them or are you blessing them? Are you being kind or are you withholding your love? Are you dwelling in the past or are you dwelling in the present? Are you obsessing about the future? Are you uh, dwelling in the present? Are you, are you identifying with your victimization or are you identifying uh, with the fact that there are no limits in the realm of spirit? There are these principles of mind. Just like there are objective discernibles of the ob objective discernible laws of the external world, there are objective discernible laws of internal world as well, namely cause and effect. Namely, what you think will manifest on a material plane on some level. Just learning these things and then through the workbook, practicing them, seeing your own experience of life, seeing everything that happens in your life as that which creates your experience. You and I are no different here right now. You're showing up to the best of your ability with your skills. I'm showing up to the best of my ability with my skills. You could be just phoning it in. I could just be phoning it in, but we're both trying. I mean, we both showed up. And then we will exponentially create something neither one of us could have created by ourselves. If we remain in that space of basic goodwill, basic um, willingness to show up as best we can in life, life works in one way. If we don't do that, looking only for what we can get from a situation, not really showing up and giving our all, then life will turn out another way. It's really quite simple. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simpler than sometimes we think. Right. So uh, I get the sense that a big part of this is kind of letting go in a certain sense, almost letting go of your ambitions or, or at least letting go of the kind of uh, single-minded, instrumental pursuit of your ambitions, right? There, well, yeah, <laughs> because, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, didn't uh, no, no, just, well, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> That single-minded um, focus on our own individual ambitions is the malignancy of the planet at this time. Every cell in the body is led through a natural intelligence to work collaboratively with other cells to serve the higher functioning, the best functioning of the organ of the organism of which they're part. The cell that disconnects from that collaborative function and goes off to do its own thing is a cancer cell. That's a malignancy in the body, and it's also a malignancy in consciousness. And it is a, the malignancy that it, it has infected the human race, which is simply the thought, it's all about me. That's how we got where we are. People thinking it's all about me. It's not all about you. Our lack of reverence, our lack of devotion, our lack of generosity, our lack of compassion, our lack of showing up for one another is killing us. Mm -hmm. So. You, you, you see the ego as it often manifests itself, at least, as, as a big part of the problem. 
um, is the problem. Okay. The belief that we the the belief that we are separate from each other. Mm-hmm. The belief that we are separate from each other is the problem. I mean, we're separate physically, but we're not separate on the level of mind. We're not le- separate on the level of spirit. What we do want to one another, we are doing to ourselves. So I, I guess, you know, maybe people have asked this of you, but uh, it must occur to some people, wait a second, you're, you're uh, telling us to, in a certain sense, let go of the drive for self-advancement and yet look where you've gotten. You're a very prominent, successful person. Did you really get there kind of without trying, so to speak? Oh, no, I work hard. However, I see it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. God so clothed the lilies of the field. When I started my career, I was giving these lectures on A Course in Miracles. The last thing I ever thought would happen was that a career would emerge from this. There was nothing to be ambitious for. This career niche didn't even exist. Didn't even exist. A woman gets up on stage. She talks about this book about love. Mm. There was no career niche. There was no ambition to be had. Then the AIDS community burst, you know, the AIDS explosion, the crisis happened. How could I say love mattered, but not show up for this? So I'm this AIDS activist, this lady talking about love. So somebody suggests you write a book. I said, well, I don't feel pregnant with a book. He said, well, it's in these talks that you give all the time. I said, well, I don't know how to get what I say onto a page. He said, it's in those tapes you make, those little cassette tapes. I said, but I don't know how to get it out of the cassette tapes to the page. He said, well, let's join in consciousness that somebody out there does. The very next week, I meet a literary agent. He introduces me to an editor. We write a proposal. I'm like, okay. Somebody says, you really need to write this down on paper. Oprah Winfrey reads the book. That's a good break. Thank you. Thank you. So in other words, it was a natural order of events that did not come from my ambition. It came from my seeking to live the best life I could possibly live. Now, within that space of her uh, of her unbelievable largesse, generosity and opening that she created for me, have I and do I work hard? Absolutely. But there there is a conversion that one makes from a sales mentality to a service mentality. From a from an ambition uh, mentality to an inspiration mentality, and I assure you that I've had far more success, including material success, when I have remained aligned with inspiration and service than when I have veered into uh, ambition um, or sales. And when you said thank you just now about about the Oprah Winfrey break, kind of who or what? Are you thinking? And now the background for that question is that A Course in Miracles, again, it, it, it comes out of a Christian theistic background. And I'm sure a lot of people who read it uh, and, and listen to you uh, imagine that they are being led through life by God, including when auspicious, when, you know, when fortunate things happen. And I think you use, you know, you use the, the terminology of theism uh, at, at the same time I've heard you kind of translate that language into less theistic language. Uh, for example, I think uh, you said something like, I'll get this wrong, but you'll know what I'm talking about, that that uh, God's will, you know, because God is love and will is kind of like thought, uh, you know, you can God's think of it as, love as loving thought. thought, right? So, uh, and I, so I guess, I mean, I have two questions. 
are you managing? This is kind of a crossover thing in a certain sense that your worldview appears appeals to people whose theological assumptions vary widely, and in, in, including on the question of, of, of whether there is a God. Uh, that, that's my first question. And then I guess my second question is, how do you think of it? Um, okay. Well, okay. Well, you said a lot there. So a uh, lot to unpack there. First of all, The Course in Miracles is not a Christian document. It is Christ-centered, but that is distinct from Christian. This is not the Christian religion. There is no dogma, no religion, no doctrine. The Course in Miracles says religion and psychotherapy at their peak are the same thing. It does use Christ-centered language, but I remind you, I'm a Jew. When I first saw The Course in Miracles, as a matter of fact, even though the material intrigued me, I saw all the language like Christ, Holy Spirit. I went, oh, oh, well, you know, I'm Jewish. We don't read that. A year later, I picked it up again. And to be honest, I was in such pain. I didn't care what the language was. And realized, oh, this isn't the Christian language. I'm not being asked to convert to the Christian religion. So the students of the Course in Miracles come from all religions and no religion. There are many people in the world today. As a matter of fact, um, publishers say it's the largest growing non, it's a denomination, a non-denominational denomination of people who are very interested in Jesus and Christ, but don't want to think, well, but can, do I have to go through the institutional reality of the Christian religion? And the answer actually is no. Many people are finding, don't get me wrong, are finding the genuine spiritual gold within institutional religion, but many people are not. Now, as someone who's written books based on the Course in Miracles, given talks based on the Course, I do use the language. However, when it comes to politics, I have great respect for uh, religious pluralism in this country, particularly as a Jew. I know how important it is that we have an agreement in our society, and I honor it. I respect it for um, uh, language, secular language with which we discuss political issues. I know how damaging it is when you start going in any other direction. So I found it relatively easy. Like you said, when I talk about political issues or I'm talking in a political context, I do not say, let us pray. I do not say, uh, I mean, I, I don't have a problem mentioning God, but it is very different and I respect it. Now, interestingly enough, I think some people take that too far. The separation of church and state while it is one of the most enlightened aspects of the U.S. Constitution, was not meant to suppress the uh, religious conversation. It was meant to um, it, it was meant to protect it from governmental interference, as much as it was meant to protect the government from interference by religious uh, doctrine or clergy. One of the things I put on my Substack the other day is the prayer that FDR read to the nation uh, after the beginning of the D-Day invasion. And I've certainly been, as much as I've been writing about the politics of the Ukraine situation today, I've also been writing prayers about it and posting them as well. To me, it's both and. So when you said thank you, uh, how, how, how do you, oh, okay. just you personally, how are you <laughs> okay. thinking of it? Are you thanking the okay. universe? Are you thanking God? Are you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. To me, there is a power that keeps the planets uh, revolving around the sun. There is a power that turns an embryo into a baby. There is a power that turns an acorn into an oak tree. There is a power that turns a bud into a blossom. It, it is nature. And I believe that this same tendency 
towards that which is the next best manifestation is at work in human life as well. The difference between me and an acorn is that I have free will. Free will means I can say, yes, nature work through me, which I do with every loving thought. Or I can close my heart and send things off in another direction. Okay. Um, so you've, you've said, I think this is a quote from you, the Messiah is not a person, but a point of view. Well, no, uh, I didn't say that quite like that. No, I wouldn't. Oh, okay. I, I have often said, um, uh, I've said things like, uh, uh, the the Christians say uh, the Messiah came. Uh, the Jews say Messiah is coming. Einstein said Messiah is no, there is no time. Einstein said there is no time. I didn't say Messiah is a point of view, but the Messiah is the consciousness of total unconditional love for one another. So that will be the salvation of humankind, in other words. Absolutely. That I mean, that's what you mean by it is the Messiah. Absolutely. Uh, is it is that? required in other words is that required to save the world it's kind of a you know if you look around it seems like kind of a big ask right i mean uh it, it would be it would be a big change him? yeah i it, mean i mean actual the the actual unconditional love pervading the species would represent yeah. something of a change something of a change yeah there's something of a change so i would say to you uh how are we doing how are we doing? Our not lack well. of reverence, not well. So our lack of reverence and devotion for the planet itself, the, our lack of reverence and devotion for each other, our lack of reverence and devotion for animals, uh, our willingness to behave in the most insane ways, using resources uh, to develop uh, ways to kill one another in much greater proportion than developing ways that we might heal each other. How's that? Where? How? Where has that gotten us? We are literally, literally at this moment living at a time where the insanity of the whole thing, the bankruptcy of the whole thing could not be more obvious. We have been told for decades that our nuclear posture of mutually assured destruction was going to keep us safe. So the United States has, let's say, 7,000, about 7,000 nuclear bombs. Russia apparently has about 6,000. I remind you, you drop five of those, it's over for human civilization as we know. It dropped 10 of those, it's over for the species for at least several hundred thousand years. Now, what has become obvious over the last week is obvious as we speak and a conundrum for the, for the free world as we speak is that, well, that mutually assured destruction principle only works if you're dealing with what they call today rational actors. So what we're doing is just not working. It's right. not working. And, and, and I think it's kind of like in personal change. And this is where my background comes in. Yeah, you really want, you want your life to work? Yeah, you're going to have to change the whole thing. And that's what a lot of people want to avoid. Although once you accept it, boy, it's beautiful. So, yeah, I guess what frustrates me is, in theory, all you would have to have is rational actors in other, and rational self-interested actors. In other words, if you look at something like climate change, I mean, assuming we care about future generations, which by and large, People do, I think. I, I mean, you you could you you could see that it's that it's it's in the long term interest of you, your lineage, your country, whatever, to do something about this. The only way to do something is if all countries agree to do these things, which in turn uh, implies that their citizens have to do so. You know, you can imagine just reaching the agreement on grounds of rational self interest, and that's true in a lot of realms. A lot of arms control. 
problems and, and so on. And uh, I guess, I mean, first of all, it's just the observation that that does in many realms doesn't seem to be getting the job done. But I, but I guess I'd also say, I mean, uh, I guess your line is, well, if that's not working, let's try something else like unconditional love. Whereas I'm thinking, man, if we can't even do this, if we can't even get people to, in a clear-eyed way, pursue their own long-term interests, what is the hope for transforming them, you know, into these wonderful people? Well, first of all, I, I just have to stop for a second and tell you how much I appreciate how smart your questions are. But let me say this. What you call rational self-interest is turning out to be sociopathy. If you look at the people who run oil companies, big oil companies, you're saying, well, clearly they're rational actors. Are they really? Because we are living at a point where further oil extraction, every single day we do it, we are already at a point where we will not be able to avoid the worst crises of, of uh, weather, of, of climate change. We're already at a point where we're told that within a few years, the forest fires in California will be one third more than they are now. We are already facing disaster. What's rational about these systems? Let's get over the idea that these people are rational. Or I, I would say this, there is a way of, I mean, there, look, there's a way that Hitler, I mean, what does rational mean at this point? I mean, within a certain context, I mean, if you think the Jews are or should not exist on the planet, it's rational to seek to what kill them. I mean, this this idea of rational self-interest, that's kind of my point here. You're right. It's not only you know, you and what you said a couple of minutes ago was, well, I'm saying, well, if it's not working, let's not be so glib about it. it's not working. It is killing us. That entire concept that that infuses the modern political and economic systems of the last 100 years or 150 even, based on the idea of rational self-interest, has led us to the edge of species suicide. So, no, it's more than, well, that's not working. It's like we must change. When a species, we were all when we were children, we learned how evolution works. When a species is moving in a direction that is maladaptive for its survival. The time comes where it will either evolve, mutate, change, or it will go extinct. And that is where the human race is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say there's some impressive initiatives, right? I mean, uh, climate change, arms control, wherever you look, you can, you can point to these things that were smart and then they got derailed. Like, hold uh, on, hold on, hold on. you know, hold on, hold on, hold on. Look where we are with Vladimir Putin today. All, right. all those conferences on arms control and the world is being held hostage by a nut job with a nuclear arsenal. So, so you know, I, I do appreciate the sincerity right. with which many people have pursued arms control talks, but let's not kid ourselves. Let's stop being so naive, shall we? The nuclear industry in the United States is such a multi-billion dollar entity, such a million dollar concern. Do you think that we have 7,000 nuclear bombs just to defend ourselves or protect ourselves? No, we stopped working seriously at total uh, non-proliferation of nuclear bombs years ago. 
when I was young, we used to walk down the street with big banners, ban the bomb. People don't even try anymore. So let's stop pretending that we've made all these serious efforts because we have not made any serious efforts that have been willing to undercut the basic tenets of unfettered capitalism. Yeah, I guess maybe part of my question is, um, you know, if you look at, at, at what has led us to abandon arms control, you know, why did uh, why did Trump get out of the intermediate nuclear forces uh, accord? Why did George W. Bush get out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty and so on? If you look at how it's fallen apart, I mean, I have my own ideas about what went wrong. And I would say that often in a weird way, what went wrong is our failure to intelligently pursue our long term interest. And, and even if you look at the, the things that have led uh, Putin, in my view, to feel more and more fenced in, leaving aside the question of whether he ultimately went crazy. You know, if you look at kind of the, the relentless encroachment of NATO, there were people warning about that in the 90s on grounds of strict self-interest. They were saying it's not in the long term interest of the U.S. to freak Russia out. And I guarantee you it will do that. So I, I see that. I mean, look, I'm not against unconditional love. I'm in favor of it. No, but, I don't get that you're against it. But, but I do. I'm sorry. Go on. No, please forgive no, me. No, I'm I, uh, I, well, I, I guess I would. The, the last thing I'd say is one of my own hobby horses is the failure of people to do a good job at just putting themselves in the shoes of the other person. They don't even have to love the other person or even care about them, but it would help if they understood the perspective, if they understood, well, like, how is this being viewed from Russia? How might they react? I just think if you could solve that problem in life, I mean, all kinds of things would be would be different. Um, OK, so I'm not an anti-capitalist, but we have adopted in this country the most toxic form of capitalism that was ushered in by Reaganomics, trickle down economics, and that is unfettered unregulated capitalism. The idea of the absolutism of property rights, that absolutism, that dedication to unfettered capitalism contradicts the ability to consider the long-term good of you, your children, or other people. If your bottom line is short-term profit maximization for a corporate entity, in this case, for instance, the nuclear industry, you ask, why did Trump do that? We know why he did that. Why did Bush did that? We know why he did it, because of tremendous pressure from the nuclear industry, so the military industrial complex, et cetera. You cannot be dedicated to that as your bottom line and not find yourself willing to exploit and willing to destroy. I mean, look at what happened during COVID. The masters of, of, of capitalism in this country made it very clear that they would be OK with watching people drop dead rather than change uh, their their marketing principle. And I say that not as someone who is anti-capitalist. I don't believe that this is inherent in capitalism, but I believe that we have to be open eyed, clear eyed about the form of capitalism, which is this absolutism of, of property rights and short term economic gain that is that has taken us to where we are, whether it has to do with the military industrial complex, whether it has to do with oil um, companies or anything else. It's killing us. So on COVID, you were talking about the, the refusal to kind of relax intellectual property rules enough to get vaccines around the world. Or what, is that what you were talking about? Well, yes. And the very fact that at that moment, um, <clears throat> the president could have Trump could have done it. Um, 
He could have uh, put into, into, into practice the National Defense Production Act. He could have made, don't you remember at the very, very beginning when governors were, were, were begging for equipment, they were begging for uh, personal protection equipment, they were begging for masks, they were begging for so much before they even had the vaccine. But Jerry Kushner, for instance, he was very adamant, no, we're not, we're not going to mess with the ability of, um, of companies in America who could make this and make some money off of this. People died because of an unwillingness to override uh, the practices of how our market operates on a normal in a normal situation mm -hmm. uh, simply because it was a crisis. Even even now, I mean, the president, uh, Biden, he could declare a national medical emergency and expand Medicare to everyone. If we had Medicare, for that matter, one of the reasons people die of COVID quite a lot, one of the preconditions that is most dangerous is diabetes. Why do so many Americans have diabetes compared to that uh, people in other countries? Because insulin is so expensive, because they're rationing their insulin. So everything's connected to everything. It's a huge, it's a huge matrix of corporate overlords at this point, whether it's big agriculture, big chemical companies, big oil companies, big insurance companies, big pharmaceutical companies, or big defense industries. The primacy of that matrix and the unbelievable amount of money with which they can now influence and really hold hostage the workings of our government, once again, is destroying our democracy. And if we're not careful, we'll destroy our species. Now, to some extent, I'm sure you want to address that with public policy. Uh, and, um, but is it is it at the same time your view that we really can't solve the problem until there is a revolution of human consciousness um, of, a, of a kind of ambitious sort, as I understand it? I mean, unconditional well, I love is a, is, a, you know. I mean, I've, I only have some sense of what that would be because I have daughters. Right. Uh, you know, and, and even there, there are these moments. Right. <laughs> but we, we, we don't all have to become enlightened masters by next Thursday. That's mm -hmm. not what I'm talking about here. And for that matter, the American people are a good people. I, I don't think the problem is with the consciousness of the American people. I think we are a decent, dignified people who, whether we think about it in you know religious, spiritual terms of love or not, just think about it in terms of ethics and wanting to be decent people. That's not where the problem lies. The problem lies with the basic destruction of, of the social agreement at the core of representative democracy. Our government, our democracy today does not reflect the will of the people. So when people say to me, oh, Marianne, just affect the consciousness of people. My feeling is already done that. A lot of people have done that. Consciousness of people is not the problem. <laughs> the, the, the fact that the government does as much now to, to cancel the will of the people in favor of its obeisance to short-term profit maximization for its corporate donors, that's the problem. Money in politics is the, is the cancer that underlies all the other cancers. So is the idea that to the extent that it is a spiritual problem, kind of a problem of consciousness, it's the problem is mainly concentrated kind of in corporations and government or what? In the, the way people are just innocent yeah. are victims? It, in many ways, yes. It's in the way capitalism currently operates. The capitalism currently operates in this country, trickle down economics, uh, the way it operates at this point, it's not a, a system based on a free market. It is a system based on exploitation, exploitation of its workers, exploitation. I mean, the whole idea of stockholder capitalism is that the only 
only responsibility of the corporation is to serve the fiduciary needs of its stockholders, even at the expense of other stakeholders, such as the workers, the community, the environment, and so forth. So yes, in that case, when you're talking about a corporate entity through buy, uh, through corporate buybacks, through uh, stock options, through deregulation, is able to exert such incredible power over the lives and the well-being of the vast majority of people, absolutely. The problem is the way capitalism now operates. So how much of a socialist are you? Uh, the, the uh, I mean, when you dropped out of the race, you endorsed Bernie Sanders, but he's not the kind of socialist who would have the government take over all these industries, no, right? No. He's more of a, you know. He calls himself a democratic socialist. So right. first of all, as I've said here several times, I'm not an anti-capitalist. You know, I, I because I've sold a few books, I've seen the high side of the market. The, the virtue of My, profit. Yeah, yeah. I, that's not the problem. The problem is that not enough people can get into the game today. So when I look at societies that are functioning in the most uh, healthy way, the most vibrant, abundant ways, there's a mix of socialist and capitalist factors. Listen, we have ca socialist factors today. What do you think the police department is, if not, if not a socialist entity? What is public schools, if not socialist? Uh, what is the fire department, if not socialist? I believe that the we should have socialized medicine, universal health care, as does every other advanced democracy in this in this world. Um, so. I gather that you think to the extent that uh, transformation of consciousness is necessary or at least good, it sounds like you, you, you think the way to do it is to explain to people how it can improve their lives. I mean, the alternative is to say, look, we got to save the world. It can't happen unless we all become better people. You know, there's that end of the spectrum of persuasion. And then there's the more self-helpy end, right? This this can just make your life better. You focused on that. This can the, the, this can make your life better thing. Right. But you're shaking your head in a way that suggests you don't buy this this idea, this dichotomy or the idea of the spectrum to begin with. No. What I don't buy is the idea that the problem is that we have to convince anyone. People are not stupid. The majority of people in this country, poll after poll shows, the majority of, this, of people in this country already want Medicare for all. The majority of people in this country already want more responsible uh, environmental practices. The, the majority of people in this country already want free college. The majority of people in this country already want at least a serious substantial reduction in the college loan debt. So I, we don't have to we, we don't have to convince people. People are uh, not stupid. We what we have to do is to replace once again, not just influence, because I've been spending years influencing, but the institutional resistance is so strong. You have to do more than influence these people. You have to replace these people. And that's the people who are who are making these public policies. That's where the problem lies. Let's not kid ourselves that the problem lies in people. The problem lies in Washington. And um, that's why I ran for president. So, so I guess the question I was kind of asking is, does salvation of the planet, I mean lie more in the spiritual realm or the political realm. Now it seems like you're saying the political realm, uh, you know, the 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 no, problem is the just the people who happen to be making the policy, running the government, no, running no, the no. corporations. No, I mean, no, do, we, do we have to at least make them better people or we just need to to vote them out of office and out of the corporate boardroom? No, first of all, I, I, this is not about demonizing individuals. This is, I'm not, this isn't about better people. I mean, I let's stay away from all that. It's systems 
that are operating in a maladaptive way. And sometimes it's good people within systems that they don't even realize, recognize that, you know, so I'm, I'm not a, this is not about personal demonization. The answer to your question, however, is that yes, the salvation that is necessary, the only thing to be saved from is our own insanity. The only thing to be saved from is our own negative, loveless thinking. I believe in this country and in the world, a lot more people love than hate. I believe that the vast majority of people in this country would like to think that we behave in an ethical way, that they're trying in their own way to do so, and, and that the government would do, that would be their wish. I think that what's happening today, though, is that a small group of people, you know, if you have 100 people who love and then 10 people who hate, but those who hate, hate with conviction, conviction is a force multiplier. And when you look in this country, when you look at, for instance, um, let's say the everything we're talking about here today, about this huge absolutism of property rights, um, the fact that capitalism now operates in America in such a way as to be an exploitative model, uh, money for the very, very rich, for the stockholder and CEO class at the expense of people and planet. And then you look, well, who, who made this happen? Who made it happen? that the instrumentation of government would become so under the thrall and literally under the control of that perspective. Well, we know it was actually, it was the Koch brothers. It was back in the 70s and the 80s. We know what they did. Now, are you saying to me, do they not care? I don't know. I hear they care about their kids. You'd have to ask them what they're thinking. I mean, I look at people like that who spent billions and billions of dollars who actually admitted that in order for the absolutism of property rights to prevail, democracy would have to be held in chains, who actually set out to stymie our democracy and even admit it. Do they love their kids? Yeah. From what I hear, they love their kids. Where What I would ask is, well, do they not get that their kids are going to are going to breathe this air too? Do they not get that? I don't know. You'd have to ask them, but I think it's worth pointing out how many of them have bought land in New Zealand. Maybe not the Koch brothers themselves, but a lot of the people who are perpetrating this madness have bought a lot of land in New Zealand and or, and or hello, are trying to figure out ways to go to outer space to escape the madness that they helped right. to create. Right. I've got a feeling there's not going to be space for me on Elon Musk's uh, spaceship. Mm -mm, me neither. The, the um, so let's let's talk just a little more about the 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 personal manifestation of this. Again, uh, you I I think you encourage people to, in a certain sense, you know, let go of of their uh, of the relentless uh, pursuit of various kinds of success and just focus on how they handle every single interaction in their in their uh, everyday life and. I, I gather the idea is that 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 can be just completely liberating in the sense that it 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 relinquishes you from from a whole set of it liberates you from a whole set of worries, right? Uh, yes. I, I, I think a vital spiritual life is the most powerful antidepressant in the world. And did it have a kind of transformational effect on you? I mean, uh, let me ask uh, in another way. The, the, uh, I think I've heard you use the term surrender. And, and this is, you know, I come from a Southern Baptist background and surrender was a big term. Surrendering to, uh, to Jesus Christ. And it's a great, it's a very appealing idea that, that something as simple as surrendering, just, just letting go, 
is liberating and empowering. But could you talk a little more about the way that works in a context okay. that is, isn't necessarily mm-hmm. Christian, okay. although it could be? Yeah, it's not. It's not specifically Christian, actually. Okay, so remember what I said before, there's a force that makes planets revolve around the sun and that makes embryos turn into babies and that makes buds turn into blossoms and that makes acorns turn into an oak tree. Surrender means, you know what, Marianne, that force, whatever you call it, that makes all those things happen could handle the circumstances of your little life. That's number one. And number two, a whole lot better than you can. Because you, Marianne, don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And you don't know how your efforts and abilities can best serve the whole. So instead of seeing life like I'm going to take the bull by the horns, which is the common image we use for success, you realize taking a bull by the horns is a suicidal thing to do. And instead, you think of angels pushing you from behind, that nature will use you just like the cells in the body. And there is an attitudinal shift. In the East, they call it Zen mind, open mind, beginner's mind. In in the New Testament, it's be as a little child. Because a child doesn't know what's best. It's, it's getting over the notion, you know, they say in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, your best thinking got you here. You look over your life and all the times you have the, be- what, the best laid plans of mice and men. And you, you fall to your knees and you realize maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. Maybe I didn't know everything. And I would suggest to you once again, Bob, this is exactly what this conversation is. Look where we've taken the planet. How smart have we been? Oh, we've been so smart. Really? Because the whole thing could implode in any moment, the way things are right now, between the weather and and what's going on in Ukraine. We are so close to the precipice. So our way really hasn't worked. Okay. So when you when you put it like that, I mean, to, to get back to my question about what kinds of theological assumptions underlie this for the diff, for the different people who have heard your message and benefited from it, it does seem to kind of presuppose that it, in some sense, there's kind of a plan for you or a force working on your behalf. I mean, you mentioned the laws of nature, you know, uh, the acorns grow and, and so on. But of course, the laws of nature are thought by the scientists who study them to be impersonal and indifferent to our welfare and in, and indeed to give rise to all kinds of cruelty and ruthlessness in the out there in the actual natural world where even as we speak all kinds of animals are killing all kinds of other animals so it, it not for sport well uh no it's not for sport well actually uh cats play with mice but uh but yeah, by and large it's it you wouldn't call it sport that's true um and and it's of course true that what you're seeing with humankind is our evolved nature now in a, a an environment totally different from the one it was it was designed yeah. by natural selection for. That, that's part we, of the problem yeah we yeah. are the predatory species we are the predatory species. well we are there are other predatory species but we are we are the most consequentially the planet we are the like most consequentially are, yeah. predatory so but but the but but i guess the question is uh, for me to really relax like that and, and just think, you know, the kind of the lilies of the field uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sermon, right? Uh, okay. uh, you know, what Jesus was saying was, look, God looks 
tends to the smallest thing, the, right? Uh, the, the sparrow doesn't, whatever he said about sparrows, right? God yeah. is focused on everything. So you can relax kind of as, as I, I'm, I'm sure I'm misremembering well, that and misrepresenting okay. it, but, but it did presuppose there's somebody out there planning, uh, you know, uh, over overseeing your life. And okay. Okay. So sperm meets egg and this extraordinary process of cell division begins and cell multiplication and it forms a brain, it forms eyeballs, it forms skin, it forms blood, it forms kidneys, it forms pancreas, it forms lungs. This there is a creative force. You can think of it in religious terms. You can think of it in secular terms. So the idea, as I said, is that every cell is guided by a natural intelligence to what part it can best play. What I'm saying is that this idea is that there is a natural intelligence in all of us. Now, in both Christianity and in Judaism, there is the phrase, the small, still voice for God. There is also in Hinduism, uh, Gandhi talked about the small, still voice within. The idea that there is a, a wisdom of the heart, yes, that will guide, just like every cell, you go to the pancreas, you go to the lungs. It's you go into the arts, you go into education, you start a podcast, you run for office, you paint a painting. And it's the idea that the wisdom of the world is not wisdom, and the wisdom of the heart. You wake up in the morning, there's a, there's a prayer in the Course in Miracles. It says, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom? Now, then you don't just sit around like a couch potato. You don't want to because this becomes your energy. This becomes your motivation. This becomes your inspiration to participate, to align your thoughts and then align your behavior with this creative force that's healing the world. So it gives you energy. It's not the white sugar energy of adrenaline that comes from motivations like anger and ambition, but it's the energy of real nourishment that comes from serving the ages and knowing that the world needs repair. That's the Jewish concept of tikkun olam, to repair, to repair the world. So the idea is that we all have a calling or maybe a series of callings or something, but that that's a yes, meaningful way East, to look at it. It's called this Dharma, is, yes. This is what you were in some sense meant to do. Yes, yes. And each and every one of us is. That each and every one of us, there's, there's, if you look at nature, there's no piece that's not part of the perfect ecosystem. And the idea is that each of us is infinitely precious. Each of us has infinite potential. We haven't even scratched the surface. In the Course in Miracles, it says those who have achieved the most have achieved but a fraction of what each of us are capable of. And I also think the image of the immune system is particularly meaningful today. The human body can take a lot of assault and injury and illness as long as the immune system is healthy. And I think the psyche can take a lot of trauma and, 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 and heartbreak as long as the psychic immune system is healthy. And in civilization, we must have immune systems as well. And I think each and every one of us must see ourselves now as an immune system. There was a situation um, many years ago when I was a young woman, decades ago. It was in New York City. I was living in New York City. And unfortunately, these situations happen, unfortunately, as we know all the time now. But at that time, it got so much attention because perhaps it was much more rare. And that is that there was a little girl uh, who had a, was living with her foster father and he killed her. 
And the reason that the story got so much attention was because many people living on their block had in the months previous to the murder done everything they knew to do to alert whatever authorities they knew to call that something was going on there that was not okay. Was this the head and Nussbaum case or the, the, no, no I, this I would know the name. If I yeah. heard it, it was in New York city. It was back in the 1970s. Okay. So my point is it wasn't just the opportunistic disease, which was this obvious horrifying man. Mm-hmm. It was the immune system was broken. The institution, and it was particularly tragic because people had tried, but whether it had to do with child protective services, the children's services, um, the police, the system broke down. The immune system was not working as it needed to in order to save that child. And that's why we need to think of ourselves now as the immune cells in our civilization. Mm-hmm. All of us going, look at, look at what's happening with these people in Ukraine. Those people, they're not just thinking of themselves. They're, they're serving something much higher than themselves and literally inspiring the world. Okay, so I know you've got to uh, go right about now. If I can just yeah, but ask you're one, so smart. Uh, we can we can take we can, whatever we can run over. We'll, you want. Yeah. Well, good because I had a couple of leftover questions. Uh, <laughs> one is about forgiveness. Um, I, I think you've said that uh, forgiveness is an important part of uh, what uh, you know. It's an important part, I gather, of a course in miracles, and and, and it, it was very appealing to you. There's two. There's two kinds of forgiveness. There's forgiving yourself. There's forgiving other people. They're they're very um, well. They're different. I mean, I mean, was it was it both of them that that what was the key kind of forgiveness for you? Well, first of all, the way the Course in Miracles talks about the word forgiveness is very different than uh, that which we normally associate uh, as the meaning of the word. When we think of forgiveness, we think you are a jerk but I am spiritual now. So I will deign to forgive you. The course says that's not forgiveness. That's judgment. That's just, you know, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is the realization that who we are, who we are is love. When we behave without love, we are called to remember that this person is displaying lovelessness, but who they are is love. Don't fall asleep. They have fallen asleep to who they are. Don't fall asleep with them. Continue to remain awake to who they are. And in their, in your presence, you become an awakener. Now that does not mean by the way, that the person who has fallen asleep to who they are and so disconnected from the love that God created them in is not to be held accountable, i.e. Vladimir Putin. It simply means that in our normal, everyday interactions, no one's perfect. I'm not, you're not, no one that you know is, people make mistakes, but that the problem we make is that we limit our perceptions to what people do, and we want to expand our mind to remembering who they are. If somebody, you know, in every situation you have a choice, so some, you know, your ego mind is always like a heat seeking missile, a scavenger dog. See what he did. I don't like the way he looked at me. I don't like the way she talked to me. I don't like what he did. And we live our lives from that place. And because other people at the deepest level are you, there's really no place where the consciousness of one person stops and the other starts. Every time I'm just attacking and blaming another person, I'm attacking and blaming myself. So I can't ultimately 
have mercy for myself if I'm not willing to have mercy for other people. And that's what mercy is. Mercy means, yeah, so he did. So he wasn't in a good mood that day. You've acted like a jerk too. lighten up. And your whole life changes when you just seek to be more merciful to yourself and others. And you realize how much time you waste, how much energy you waste, how much bandwidth you may, uh, waste on this bitchy, shallow level of life that permeates our culture today. The mean-spiritedness that because has become so endemic and that ultimately not only becomes so toxic, but limits our capacity to create change. Okay. Um let me let me ask you to shift back to politics. Um, I, I think you said you would like to, uh, along with all the other uh, departments we already have, uh, Department of Defense and so on, create a Department of Peace. Yes. Well, now, what would it do? We, you know, we have a State Department that would say that part of its mission, at least sometimes, is peacemaking, diplomacy. Yeah. What yeah. would it? Yeah. What would a Department of Peace do? Yeah. Well, first of all, the Department of State is only international affairs and the Department of Peace would be domestic as well as international affairs. So we have about a seven hundred and seventy eight billion dollar uh, defense budget. We have about a forty billion dollar State Department budget. So and if you look at all the peace building measures within that, it's about 17 billion. So you tell me we spend seven hundred and eighty billion dollars on ways to wage war. We spend 17 billion dollars on ways to wage peace. So that's it right there. More than that, however, is that people, uh, we can move into the recognition that there are specific factors in peace building, in waging peace, just as there are specific factors to waging war. Now, four things specifically. Statistically, when these four factors are present, statistically, you have a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of conflict. Number one, expanding economic opportunities for women. Number two, expanding educational opportunities for children. Number three, reducing violence against women. Number four, reducing unnecessary human despair. When you do that, when you do that, statistically, greater peace, less conflict. Now, this is the problem. Just like people have come to understand, we must make a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. We similarly must make a just transition from a war economy to a peace economy. We have 51% of all jobs in the United States are at least indirectly uh, defense related. Even though the return on investment is greater for peace building measures such as health, education, et cetera. The problem we have is that those four issues I mentioned do not create short-term corporate profit. Waging war creates short-term corporate profit for Raytheon, for Northrop Grumman, for Boeing, et cetera. What it does create, however, is a possibility that the human race will survive. As President Kennedy said, we will end war or war will end us. So what we have right now, once again, what's happening with these nuclear bombs? So the Department of Peace, and there would be tremendous institutional resistance, because if you actually have force within the government to stand for peace-building measures, in many ways, this would come into conflict with the overriding uh, dominant force within our Defense Department, which unfortunately is not U.S. security so much as feeding the military-industrial complex. That is how corrupt and dangerous our system has become. And these four parts of the mission would be pursued globally? 
They're not just not globally. Just and listen, those same things are true, whether you're talking about a corner of an American city or a far, far off corner of the world, whether it's a, a village somewhere thousands of miles away or it's a corner of an American city. The principles are the same, expanding economic opportunities for women, educational opportunities for children and so forth. Now, as part of a Department of Peace, we should have a, a, a peace academy, just like we now have a war academy. So at a defense academy, what we do is we train people, uh, come, uh, we'll give you an education and you'll pay your country back by going out into the world and waging war if war needs to be waged. Come to the Peace Academy, learn the professional expertise and skill set of peace building. And um, we will give you that education and you will pay your country back uh, by going out and being a peace builder. It takes the concept of the Peace Corps to a much higher place. Right now, Peace Corps is just go be nice, do whatever you can. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I will let you get back to what you were doing. And it sounds like what you are doing these days is maybe a little more in the realm of politics than in the realm of spiritual leadership, or is that a false dichotomy or what? Well, first of all, it is a false dichotomy, but also it's an inaccurate description of my life. Uh, if anybody goes to my Substack, for instance, marianwilliamson.substack.com, you sign up for free. In the morning, you get a, a meditation. In the afternoon or evening, every other day or so, you'll get an article. Sometimes it's about spirituality. Sometimes it's about politics. To me, um, you know, like Martin Luther King said, uh, we must uh, have a quantitative shift in our circumstances as well as a qualitative shift in our souls. The Dalai Lama said to save the world, we must have a plan. But no plan will work unless we meditate. So to me, it's a big both hand. And I know in my life, it's a big both hand. Prepare yourself in the morning. <clears throat> try to be the best woman you can. Do what you can to practice what you preach. And try to kick ass with making things happen. There are a lot of hours in the day. And do you meditate, by the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm day. a student of the Course in Miracles. And, you know, Blaise Pascal <laughs> the French philosopher said that every problem in the world can be traced to man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. The it's all cacophony these days. It's 24 hour cacophony on the computers, on the screens. And we're not in touch with that small, still voice. The Course in Miracles says, get yourself in touch with that small, still voice for even five minutes in the morning, and it will be in charge of your thought forms throughout the day. Doesn't mean if I, if I meditate in the morning, if I do my Course in Miracles exercise, my transcendental meditation, Course in Miracles, and so forth, if I do it in the morning, it is very clear to me, I have a different nervous system throughout the day. It doesn't mean I'm going to be an enlightened master, but it does mean, and I say this from experience, that the chances of my doing something really stupid, saying something I regret, tweeting something I regret, texting something I regret, doing something I regret, drastically diminished. And my capacity to get myself back on the spiritual wagon if I've fallen off is greatly increased if I went into my heart for a for a serious period of time of reflection and mindfulness in the morning, as opposed to going directly to the phone, the computer, the newspaper, and the craziness of the world. In the okay. morning is when you download the consciousness, all the great religious and spiritual systems emphasize the power of the morning. If you give your, your mind over to the insanity of the world in the morning, 
you're going to have a very difficult time. It, it, there's no reason to be mystified why you're depressed by noon. Okay. Well, uh, I, I encourage, I encourage people to pay attention to that. Makes sense to me. Um, and people can find you again, can find your, uh, your Substack uh, newsletter at the place you told them to find it. The, and then your Twitter handle is what? Mar, <clears throat> I think it's Mar Williamson. Okay. Uh, yeah. and I have a Substack newsletter called non-zero and, and, uh, there's a book behind you called the politics of love. Is that right? Yes. That was my latest book that I published. Yes. Politics of love. Okay. Nice. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I'll have, uh, you know, the possibility of having like a cabinet position in your administration or something. Well, I tell you, you're one smart guy, no matter what I do, I'd love to I'll, talk to you. Oh, again you know, politicians have a way of saying that to everyone they meet, but, uh, do I'll, they? well, I'll, then I'll, I must stop saying I'll, it. I'll, I'll flatter myself, uh, and, and <laughs> by thinking you mean it. Okay. Well, th thanks so much, Marianne. Oh, my best dear. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Thank you.